Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Criminal Discourse. I'm Maddie. And I'm Trish. And today we're going to be taking you to Spain. Ooh. It's very exciting. I've not been, so this will be our first criminal discourse trip there together. I've not been to Europe in general, so <laughs> yes. We'll get there. We'll, we'll get, get there. there someday. So before we go there, I just wanted to give a shout out to our listeners in Arizona. So we've seen a lot of people popping up in Arizona lately. So we just wanted to give a shout out to Alhombra, Gilbert, Arizona, Peoria, Arizona, Flowing Wells, Camp Verde, Tempe, and Cottonwood, Arizona. So thank you so much for being listeners. We can tell that you're spreading the word. We appreciate it. I used to live in Arizona. Did you? I did. When my dad was stationed, I think it was Luke Air Force Base. So we lived there for about a year. It was nice. Hot. It was hot. (laughs) (laughs) I do remember that. It was very hot. We also wanted to take a second to thank Linda from Canada. Yes, Linda sent us a contact form to our website pointing out the episode we recorded with Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. I kept referencing The Fifth Element. That is a Bruce Willis sci-fi film. (laughs) Not The Fifth Estate, which is the show from Canada that featured, like if you YouTube it, you will see... Carla Homoka's interview, some of the interview with police, and then her walking through her residence and pointing things out to police. So it is the fifth estate. I have fixed it, but anyone who listened to earlier episodes, it is the fifth element. So which don't make it... watch the fifth element hoping that you're going to see something about Carla Homoka. It's a sci-fi film starring Bruce Willis, so <laughs> you can watch it if you want, but it is a mistake, and I apologize. And thank you, Linda, for pointing that out, and I can assure our listeners that may not be the last mistake I make. <laughs> depending on the time of day we record. So thank you again. And also to the listeners that have reached out to us and given us some lovely feedback through our form. We did find out we were having a problem with our email that some of it wasn't getting sent through. So if you've emailed us and we haven't gotten back to you, please, you know, be patient with us. Maybe email again. Hopefully tech support has worked out the bugs and all that, but we did get some. And in fact, we have two upcoming episodes where a listener gave us some recommendations for from Poughkeepsie, New York. So Stephanie, thank you so much. I don't know if she lives in Poughkeepsie, but she referenced it that that was her hometown. So these were cases I hadn't heard of. And the one I'm doing, the one you're doing. It's craziness. She was right. Unbelievable. You're not going to believe it. And researching and I was like, what? So that should be coming up within the next month or so. Sounds good. Okay, on to Spain. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay, so Alfredo Galan was born on April 5th of 1978, and he was born in a suburb of Madrid called Portullano. And let me just do a disclaimer here. I'm going to apologize to anybody in Spain for my pronunciation. I'm really going to try. Please correct me if I'm wrong so that in futures when I'm telling this story, it will be correct but I apologize. So he grew up in this suburb of Madrid, and at 10 years old, he was really considered shy and introverted, but a normal kid otherwise. Even with his classmates, he wasn't really easygoing or open. He was a bit closed off, and it was around that age that his mother passed away. Now, according to his teachers, she was really his primary support system. She was very attentive and involved in his life and school, and while his father wasn't negligent by any means, he he wasn't as involved, and he was working a lot and he just wasn't there all the time and didn't really understand his son and the way that he was thinking about things. 
So as a teenager, he actually became sort of a class clown. And a lot of what we say looking back on it is that he was really trying to get attention and feel important. And that's why he was going through this phase of really just trying to get as much attention from his classmates as he could. It went so far that he actually won class leader, which I don't know if it's the equivalent to class president, but he was elected for this role in his class as one of the most popular kids in his school at the time. Immediately after high school, he joined the Spanish army and was sent to Bosnia for humanitarian work after the Balkan War. During his time in Bosnia, he witnessed horrible atrocities and really became obsessed with firearms. And it just goes back to him wanting to feel important. That's why he went into the army. He wanted that uniform. He wanted to feel important and feel like people were looking at him with reverence, almost, I would say. But he found that he didn't really get that peace that he wanted. He was really doing more humanitarian work. There wasn't anything where he was really remarkable compared to his peers. Nothing heroic. No, not that it's not heroic to do humanitarian work, but from his point of view. And again, he was just getting more and more obsessed sort of with firearms and this violence and this want to, I think, again, going back to that heroic piece, trying to show what he's worth almost and what he can do. When he left Bosnia, he actually smuggled a pistol with him, a Tokarev, and it was a popular gun in Eastern Europe, but it was extremely rare in the West. Upon his return to Spain, he was supposed to be given three weeks leave after his tour in Bosnia. But in November 2002, tragedy struck in Galicia, Spain, where there was an oil spill with prestige oil. And this ended up being one of the biggest environmental disasters in Spain and Portugal's history. Now, as part of the military, he was sent with civilian volunteers to clean up this mess and to help really clean up the coast. He was very upset about these conditions. He didn't want to be doing this menial, what he considered menial work. Again, he wanted to be a war hero. He wanted to show what he was capable of, and he didn't feel that this is where that would happen. He ended up stealing a car, which I couldn't really figure out what the motive was behind him stealing a car. Do you think it was just to leave to go AWOL? Like, I'm done with it. This is beneath me or I don't want to do this anymore. So I'm out. I don't think it was. I think it was more, they talked about him having a, like an argument with a woman. So I don't know if it was, I, I don't know what the circumstances were, but he attempted to steal this vehicle and it obviously resulted in him being reprimanded by his superior officers to the point where he was admitted to a Madrid military hospital and diagnosed with neurosis and anxiety. And neurosis is not a term used anymore in American psychiatric circles because if I'm remembering my psych from college in about 1980, they stopped using that term and that really was just a class of disorders involving chronic stress, mm -hmm. but it didn't involve like hallucinations or delusions, but they changed it or they specifically classified them. So it's not a term psychiatrists use much anymore. Okay. Do you think we should get us a DSM-5 just to stay on top of it? I have a DSM-3, but that's old. That was from grad school. <laughs> it's not up to date. So after this stay in the military hospital, he was officially discharged from the Spanish army for medical reasons and was treated for his mental health and medicated, but it was not followed closely. He didn't have follow-up appointments. Nobody was really monitoring what he was taking, and he had a tendency to mix these medications with alcohol. Which you should not do. He found work as a security guard at the Madrid Barajas airport, basically going from one uniform to another. At one point, he had attempted to 
wanted to join the police force in Madrid, but he had been turned down. Most likely due to his mental health diagnoses. Yeah, I would think. And it's apparently it's very, I don't know if elite is the right word, but it's not an easy thing to become a police officer in Madrid, especially with it being such a large city. I think there's a lot of competition and he just couldn't cut it. On January 24th of 2003, Galan traveled a few kilometers from his neighborhood wearing winter clothing and he didn't really stand out. And if you see pictures of him, as we discussed before we started recording, he's not remarkable in any way. When you see his face, he doesn't have any distinguishing features, nothing that would really cause you to take notice of him. He's an average Joe. He was standing out in public and just sat in wait. At an apartment building at 89 Alonso Cano Street, Alfredo saw Juan Francisco Ledesma, a janitor by trade, letting people into the apartment building. He followed him into the building and forced him to kneel, shooting him in the back of the head using his Takarev pistol which is just cold. When the police began to investigate, they believed that it was a one-off robbery gone wrong. They couldn't really figure out what exactly had happened. It wasn't a widely looked at case from a media standpoint. It was just seen as a one-off crime. And he didn't steal anything from Juan. He didn't take like his wallet or money or anything like that. No. So I'm surprised why they might have just looked at it as a robbery since he didn't necessarily steal anything or did they think he got interrupted and couldn't steal anything? He just shot him and left. Exactly. Or maybe he was trying to get into the apartment buildings to rob and had shot him in the process, but then saw other people got scared, ran off, that sort of thing. I don't think it was seen as a robbery targeted at Juan specifically. Less than a month later, on February 5th, Juan Carlos Martin Estacio was waiting for a bus close to dawn after his overnight shift as a cleaner at the Madrid airport. Alfredo came out of the shadows, shot him, and ran off, leaving behind a Spanish playing card, the Ace of Cups. Police reported this detail to the media, and it spread like wildfire. At the time, the police didn't even think it was a major piece of evidence, and they were thinking this again was another robbery, and they didn't even connect it at the time to the first murder because it's you're in a large metropolitan area. I'm imagining that there are crimes like this not that often, but it's not something uncommon either. Well, yeah, and then the first thing, he didn't leave a playing card. Right. Glenn saw the headlines, and for the first time since he was in the army, he began to really feel important. He was now known as the playing card killer. He was getting the attention that he had been looking for all this time. And and the notoriety. Yes, the notoriety and being recognized, which isn't the word I would choose, but what he saw as being recognized for something. Later that day, he drove to a bar in Alcala de Henares, a few kilometers from his home in a suburb of Madrid. He targeted and killed the 18-year-old waiter, Mikel Jimenez Sanchez, and a woman, Juana Dolores Uclés, who was shot through the eye. He then shot the bar owner, who was the mother of three, but she was able to survive her injuries. Three playing cards were found at the scene. Also, the police found at all three murder scenes bullets that could be linked to the Takarev pistol. So now they're able to connect all three crimes, even though the first one didn't have the playing cards. They were able to ballistically show that these were all the same killer. And the pistol that he was using was, again, so rare in the West. They were beginning to put the pieces together and figure out that whoever this was had to have spent time in Eastern Europe. I want to take note of all of these were random killings. This wasn't anybody that he knew that he targeted. They weren't areas that he had targeted specifically. He was just going around suburbs of Madrid and killing randomly, which is what made him so hard to find. There were many witnesses of these crimes and they were able to give descriptions, but not very good ones. Again, he's just unremarkable. When the survivor was shown an array of photos twice, she identified another suspect as the killer. The man she had identified was a military man, 
that had multiple trips to Bosnia where he could have obtained the pistol. Police spent a month verifying his innocence, but he had been in prison on the day of the second murder. That's a good alibi. Which really, it took them a month to figure that out. Yeah, I would think he would be in their system. I mean, this is 2000, so there would be a computerized system there. If you punched his name in, they should show him in prison at that time. Maybe they were still on paper. Maybe. 2003? I don't think so. But I don't know. We've not been there. We've not been to Madrid. We don't know. Right. We can't say, well, in the American system, yes, but then... Over there, we don't. We don't know. It just seems like a long time. So any Spanish listeners, let us know. Why did it take... Please let us know why it took Madrid police a month to verify this guy's alibi. In another Madrid suburb, he approached an Ecuadorian couple, and this was in March of 2003, Santiago Salas and Ana Castillo. He shot Santiago, but when he tried to shoot Ana, the gun jammed. She could do nothing but sit and watch as her friend died. In yet another suburb, six weeks from the first killings, he crossed paths with the Romanian couple George and Diana Magna. He forced them both to kneel and shot George execution style in the head. In reaction, Diana turns to protect herself, turns away from him, and he shoots her three times. She was able to hold on for two days prior to dying. Was she ever able to give the police... A description of the person that shot him, or did she not wait? I honestly don't. I'm not sure. I know she was in the hospital for those two days, but I don't know how much information she was able to give police. And again, at this scene, they found two more playing cards. With these attacks, there were more witnesses that were coming forward, and they were giving such differing descriptions that police began to think there were two killers using the same gun. That's how different they were. So I watched a documentary, Alfredo Galan, the playing card killer, and they show these sketches, and they look completely different. It doesn't look, it, it could be three different people from the different sketches that they did based on these descriptions. So according to later testimony given by Alfredo, he started to feel angry about the fact that he was not the one being recognized for these murders. So even though there was the playing card killer, that wasn't enough for him. He wanted everyone to know that this was him taking these actions and killing these people. On July 3rd in 2003, he came to the police in his hometown of Portellano himself and confessed. He claims that it was to prove to the police how stupid they are. Experts think that he was just more frustrated at not having this notoriety for himself. But when he came into the police station, he was also inebriated. Probably shouldn't show up drunk at a police station and confess because they may not take you seriously. Which is exactly what happens. From their perspective, this drunk came in and said that he was responsible for all of these killings. And they said, go home. They did not take him seriously. They sent him away thinking that this is just the rants of some drunk and it has nothing to do with the actual murders. Besides the fact that this police force wasn't the one actually investigating the crimes, it was the Madrid police and this was a suburb of that. Later that same day, he finally sobered up and decided to come back again to confess to his crimes and hopefully been taken seriously. Did he show up at the same police office? Yes, the exact same So he office. didn't go into Madrid, he just went to his hometown. Yes, he just, you know, took some time, sobered up, and then came in again. Drank some water, got something to eat. This time they started to take him more seriously, and when they called the Madrid police force to let them know that this person was there, there was a detail that Alfredo had given that had not been released to the press. On the back of each of the playing cards that had been left, there was an ink mark that had been done. And Alfredo was able to give this detail. And that's when the Madrid police told them, do not let this guy go. They knew that they had him. In his interrogation, he gave details on all five attacks that resulted in six murdered victims and three injured. He was described as calm and pulled together during this interrogation. And what he seemed most worried about was clarifying that 
He had surrendered. He had not been caught by the police. But isn't that that's what he's most worried about? He's yeah. giving grisly details on every single one of these murders. And all he really cares about is that he outsmarted the police. Well, yeah. He's not right. Well, no, I know. It's just it's just baffling to me. It wasn't until his trial, specifically his sentencing, that he showed much emotion at all. He seemed to be an empty shell until he realized that there were consequences to his actions. So he's reveling in the fact that I'm getting all this press and here's the trial and I'm getting that notoriety and fame that I want, even though it's the wrong way to go about doing it. And he doesn't really get it until like, the judges are like, um... Yeah, this is what we're handed down. Exactly. Once in court, he did attempt to blame everything on a neo-Nazi. He said that he had sold the gun to this guy months before and that the neo-Nazi had come back to him and forced him to confess to crimes that he had not committed, threatening the life of Alfredo's sister. But the judge wasn't buying it. The court squashed any insanity plea, agreeing that he was capable of determining right and wrong at the time of the murders. Now, similar to what we saw in the Berna case in Iceland, it seems to me that it's more of a panel of judges as opposed to a jury trial like we're used to in the U.S. So you can see, and in the documentary, you see video of the trial itself, and you'll see all of these judges lined up making these decisions. He was sentenced to 142 years and three months in prison, a sentence that he is still serving. He said to a guard at some point during his interrogation that he had killed because he wanted to know what it felt like to kill. I don't really agree with that. And that might be the first killing. But after the first, you know, and clearly he liked it. Whatever was his motivation, whether it was for that fame, notoriety, to stand out, to get that recognition he craved. But clearly he got something from killing these poor people. Yeah. At this point, we usually talk about criminal discourse life tips. And I'm like, I'm not sure on this one. I don't know. I think nowadays it's a little different, too, where we were talking about the eyewitness testimony. Now everybody pretty much has a smartphone. So that's true. You know, if you're people are so quick to whip them out and take pictures or videos. Video, that it might be a little different with witness identification now compared to back then when you were just going on somebody's memory because it isn't reliable. It's not. And we've seen it so many times. And if you listen, so I also listen to Stuff You Should Know. Have you ever listened to that podcast? No. They explain all these different things. And they did a really good episode on eyewitness testimony and just going through all of the different situations where it doesn't work and how memory actually works and all of these different pieces to show how unreliable eyewitness testimony really is. And I think the scariest part of this is that these were all random attacks. It's nothing where anybody could have known that this was going to happen. He's just randomly picking an area and shooting. Yeah, because even his time frame, there might be too close together and then he'll go a month or six weeks. Yeah, whatever it takes to get that media attention. I guess it died down and he wanted it back. Wow. Good one. I'd not heard of the playing card killer. I hadn't either. I was actually looking up. I was looking at a different case and I saw the playing card killer and I was like, wait, what? I've never heard of this ever. And it's very different for Spain, too, because they don't have a lot of serial killers. I know we're kind of used to this in the U.S. Unfortunately, we just happen to have a lot that operated in certain time frames, especially. But there's not a lot of that going on in Europe and especially in Spain. It just wasn't something that the police were even looking for. And that's why when they started to link these murders together, they were even more surprised because they weren't expecting that. They would never ex look for similar pieces of different crimes to link them together just because, again, when they're not used to seeing these serial attacks, it's not something that they're on the lookout for. Okay. Okay. Do you have any life tips? No. <laughs> I'm just trying to <laughs> we think. We just have nothing. 
I would say this as a life tip, if you are craving attention, which I think in this case, not really a life tip. He wanted that notoriety. He wanted that fame or to be seen as a hero. He could have gone into the military and really worked his butt off in the military to rise to a level of stature where Mm -hmm. he would have got recognition, but he didn't. You know, he could have done volunteer work in his community and stood out as a community leader to get that recognition and notoriety, but he didn't. Well, and I think it's too just thinking about how entitled some people feel and it's and that victim mindset that he had. And you can see throughout his entire life, it was, you know, he thought that he was entitled to that notoriety and that he was just not being recognized. He was not being recognized in the military. He was not being recognized by his superiors officers. And when he was discharged, it was almost a vengeance on society as, you know, society has not recognized me for who I truly am and how well known I should be. So now I'm going to take on society. Well, and Two, he clearly had a mental illness, not that it precluded him from knowing right from wrong, but, you know, nobody was overseeing, especially him. He wasn't taking an active part in his mental health and the drinking doesn't help. Do we know if he was intoxicated at the time of any of these killings? I don't know. I know he was medicated, but it didn't specify that he was, you know, right remarkably inebriated throughout all of these but it seemed more like he was it just a functioning alcoholic slash medicated yeah slash serial killer he wore many hats well thank you everybody for listening today we truly appreciate it if you'd like to check out our facebook page please do it is criminal discourse podcast we also have a website criminal we do have a contact page there that some people have reached out to us said some lovely things to us so thank you thank you thank you for your kind words we truly appreciate it we also have an instagram page that we now are up to 12 Ooh, we've doubled organic growth right there there you go and it is criminal dis pot. So check any of those out. We again, truly appreciate you listening today. And remember, if you see something, say something, you might have that missing piece of the puzzle that it takes to solve a crime. And until next time, we would just ask you to be safe. But also let's remember we need to be kind. So until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.